Um, I want you to think this morning real quick about, um, we're, we're, in the, we're talking about meals every Sunday. It's always about meals, right? Eating and things like that. What's a memory? When you think about dining together with somebody or with family, whatever, do you have a memory that like immediately pops up in your mind when you have to think about like memories around meals or dining? Think about that for just a second. And now what I want you to do is if you have one, take just, we're going to take like 60 seconds. And I want you to turn to somebody near you. Some of you may need to move to find somebody near you. But I want you to share just real briefly that story. What is that memory that you have that centers around a meal? Go. Move and make that happen. Go. Okay, take about 20 more seconds. Keep going. Okay, start wrapping it up about 10 more seconds or so. All right, so does anybody have a story that you're willing to share in the big group? that you just like, just in a, you know, 10, 15, 20 seconds. What's your memory centered around a meal? Jaden, this uh, is scary. Me and my buddies, we can never decide where to go, but the car always ends up at Jethro's somehow. Okay. There you go. Their car is on autopilot to Jethro's. There you go. Anybody else? So you had to do it in a hurry. A rush. <laughs> a rush. <laughs> That's funny. Anybody else? I was thinking about being in Ethiopia and the experience of everybody eating off like a giant plate mm-hmm. and sharing food and then also having people feed you as like a loving thing. But yeah. for me it was not loving so loving. Also uncomfortable. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I had an Ethiopian memory as well. I had the opportunity, Josiah and I went, and one night we went to a pizza place that was right outside where we were staying, and we ordered a veggie pizza, and uh, it came with frozen green beans on it. Was unaware that that was part of the veggie pizza. It was a special pizza. It's always stuck in my mind, and how many years ago were we in Ethiopia together, Josiah? Not frozen, they'd been cooked, but you just don't really expect green beans on a pizza, you know? I mean, that's kind of, for an American, I should say. It's kind of odd outside for us. Another memory, when I was thinking about this this week, I thought, I I don't know why, but something took me back to my college days, and uh, where, I've shared before, 
I had a few, I went to a college where like on the weekends, everybody scattered and there were very few of us that actually stayed on campus. So those that stayed on campus got to be really good friends. And so a couple of friends and I, we would all, every Saturday night, our tradition was we'd go get Chinese. There was this hole in the wall place called Jade China, had like four booths inside. It was run down hole in the wall, but for like three bucks, you got an entire, I, I get it, Keegan, I'm old. It was like 12 bucks today, inflation, all that stuff. But <laughs> three bucks, you'd get this entire styrofoam container full. I mean, it was mounded with food. Now, I'd love to tell you in that last three meals, hey, I was in college and, you know, I'd eat it all that night. But at the end of that meal, we had this tradition. And, of course, because we're just stupid college students, we'd get to the fortune cookie part and then we'd break them up. And then so what we would do is we would, in order to read your fortune, you had to cram them into your cheeks and then read the fortune. You know, I mean, silly, right? But that became our mealtime tradition. Like when it was, when we had Jade China, that's what we do. We'd read the fortunes. And of course, we're just stupid 18, 19 year olds. And we just laugh and laugh and laugh. And it was, you know, a lot of fun. What can I say? To be honest, that's not the full story. The full story was at the end of the fortune, we would require you to add in bed. And then because, yeah, because I went to a fundamentalist college, you know, that, that can produce some strange behavior, some repressed, repressed things coming out there, you know. So what can I say? <laughs> Memories centered around a meal. Sometimes it makes us laugh. Sometimes it makes us smile. There are times that we can think about even the memories we've had and the loss we've experienced because of things. And so it can even produce this, you know, it can make us cry. But often these moments that are remembered evoke some type of emotional response. Did you see that when you were sharing your stories? You were smiling or you were, you know, whatever. Typically, we probably go to those good memories, right, that we can share. And since we're still in this series that we're calling Today's Special, we're looking at Jesus. And have you been surprised like me, like how much of his ministry centered around food? I mean, a savior I can relate to right there. I love this. But especially in the Gospel of Luke, he just continues over and over again to talk about just the times that Jesus encountered and engaged people around food. Just so you know, there's a lesson for us there. Keep that always in your mind. But as we come to today's story, we're going to look at how Jesus uh, took something that these disciples had done all their lives, basically. Um, they'd grown up doing it. It was part of their family tradition. It was an annual meal that they celebrated together. And Jesus had done this before, too. It wasn't his first time, but this would be his last time. And in this moment of this meal, this celebration, this festival or feast that they were doing, Jesus does something very odd and very strange with something very familiar. And he really brings a lot of new meaning to it. He reshapes it completely. In fact, you see these tables set up. It's something that Jesus instituted that we continue to do today. So what is this? And you can, you can probably figure it out. We're going to be talking about communion. We're going to be talking about Jesus' last supper with his disciples. Um, and we're going to see how this really was, Jesus kind of saving the best for last. It's a really good, good moment. But let me set the scene. This meal is taking place towards the end of Jesus' life. I mean, within... What, 24, 36 hours, he's going to be crucified. He's going to be dead. And uh, he's been teaching. He's been healing. He's been forgiving sin. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, 
They're fully aware of who Jesus is. They know him by name. They've heard about him, and they don't like him. They've, he's had, he has completely upset the order of things in how they did things. Their religious structure was running well. It was a well-oiled machine. Now, it was a harsh machine, and it left out a lot of people, but that was unimportant. We're doing our thing, and we're, we're making God happy, so he has to accept us. That's kind of the religious mindset. And so Jesus comes along. He's challenging their way of life. He's challenging their power. He's telling them things like there's a different way that my kingdom's going to be. And so these folks are just to the end with Jesus, and they're conspiring to, to take care of things. They're conspiring to end his life. And so right before that happens, we're in the season of Passover, an annual festival and meal, and Jesus shares this with his disciples one final time. And so we pick up the story in Luke's Gospels. Now, this is in all four Gospels, but we're going to use Luke's. And it's in Luke chapter 22. We're going to start in verse 1. It'll be on the screen for you to follow along. It says, Now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priest and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. And so we're going to jump ahead here, but what we do is if you continue to read these next few verses, you find out that they go to Judas, Judas goes to them, Judas says, hey, I'll give him to you. And they say, great, we'll give you 30 pieces of silver. And so they make this arrangement for Judas to, to betray Jesus at some point in this evening. It says, then, they, then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Now, just so you know, this is most likely Thursday. Passover was usually Friday, so things are going to be taking place about a day ahead for Jesus because of what's coming. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. So they left and found things just as Jesus had told them. Let me tell you a little bit here. So this festival of Passover took place in Jerusalem. So this was kind of a pilgrimage feast that people came to town. So this is not an unusual scenario taking place. Like for us, it sounds weird, like somebody just coming knocking on your house. Hey, you got a room for us to do Passover? Lots of people were coming to town. So this was not out of the ordinary. So they prepared the Passover. So when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, how that's the most uncomfortable way to eat a meal. But hey, that's what they did. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover. I love this phrase. Look at how it says, I eagerly desire. This is something Jesus is like, I've been waiting for this moment. This is it. I'm so excited to be here with you in this room right now to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and it gave to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Now, this is probably the most famous meal ever in history, right? I mean, would you agree with that? I mean, thanks to Leonardo da Vinci, 
right? I mean, we've got this picture right here, which is completely and historically inaccurate, not how it happened. And wouldn't you like to be the Yahoo in the 17th century that said, hmm, I think a door right here at Jesus' feet would be great, where they carved out a door. Not there originally when da Vinci painted this, just so you know. That guy gets to be famous forever. But if you've been at Ashworth on the first Sunday of the month, you know this is something that we create, recreate every month to remind us of this moment, to remind us of what Jesus did right here with his disciples. But why? Why do we do this? Is this just some religious thing that makes us feel special that we do? Or what is the real meaning and the significance behind this? Well, to understand this, really what we need to do is we need to jump back several thousand years. Because this festival of Passover, this celebration of Passover, was something that goes way back. And really to understand the full story, we've got to even go back to Abraham. That's a long time ago. And I'm going to give you the very, very abbreviated version of this story. But don't worry, we're going to come back to some of this this fall, and we'll fill in the pieces. But we go back to Abraham. Abraham's just a guy, and out of the blue, God calls him and says, Hey, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. Your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the sea. And uh, I'm going to be a blessing to you. And we often leave this part out. So that, Abraham, you can be a blessing to the world, not just to one group of people, but to the world. And in that promise that God makes to Abraham, there was a covenant. There was a, an animal that was killed, and God kind of in a presence of some kind, we don't really understand, he kind of walked through that as a sealing of this covenant. God made a promise. This is what I'm going to do. And part of that promise was, and I'm going to give you a land. I've got a place for you to go. And so you move forward a few, time, few generations. Abraham has a son named Isaac, and Isaac has a son named Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. And these 12 sons, there's one that he really likes. Talk about playing favorites. And it's Joseph, and he's got that amazing Technicolor dream coat and all that good stuff. And, and through what's happening in the world, a famine hits the world. And again, I'm skipping so many important details. But Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. He's taken to Egypt through amazing, miraculous things. He rises to become like Pharaoh's right-hand man, like in charge of the kingdom kind of thing. There's a famine that hits the land, and Joseph's the guy. He's preparing, he's, got, he's been storing up food. So basically all the world comes to Egypt at that time because they can't eat unless they do. And in that moment, Jacob, Joseph's dad, and his brothers all move to Egypt because that's where the food is. Well, then something incredible starts happening. These Jewish people are also called the Hebrew people, Hebrew nation. They begin to reproduce they become numerous, so numerous that the Egyptians get concerned. And they say, we've got to do something about this. So what they do is they enslave them. They forget about Joseph and all the great things he'd done for the nation. And these, the, the Jewish people become their slaves. And this is horrible. It is hard labor. They're abusive. They, you know, there's no real life. It's, it's a terrible existence. And so the people begin to cry out to God. They cry out to God and say, God, where are you? You've made this promise to us. This promise is not being fulfilled. Would you save us? And God uses a man you may know of named Moses. He calls Moses, and Moses reluctantly agrees to be the leader. And Moses is then encountering Pharaoh. And he goes and he says, hey, God says, let my people go. 
Pharaoh, kind of a fun story to read. He starts off very no, 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 no. And then he, I guess he just starts playing games with Moses. And he's like, yeah, just kidding, no. And in order to encourage this to happen, you find a really difficult part of the Bible where plagues are sent on the nation of Egypt in order to encourage Pharaoh to let him go, let him go. And there's 10 of them. You know, there's things like water turns to blood, and there's flies, and there's locusts, and there's all these things. And then you get to the 10th plague, which is horrific, which is honestly, when you talk about people deconstructing faith, the 10th plague could probably be at the top of reasons why. Because that 10th plague that God unleashed on that nation was the killing of the firstborn. And what God did in that moment with the Jewish people was he said, but for you to bypass, so this plague doesn't impact you, you are to sacrifice a lamb. And with the blood of that lamb, you are to smear your doorpost with the blood. So that when the angel of death comes through, your houses will be, get ready for this, passed over. Did you get that? See how this comes together? The plague comes to pass. There's death like you can't imagine in the nation of Egypt. Pharaoh finally relents and says, you guys, please get out of here and go. Until again, he changes his mind and chases them to the Red Sea where they're able to walk across and the Red Sea crushes the army and all this craziness that goes on. But what we find is in this first path, this is the Passover. And so from that moment forward, they created this festival, this celebration to remember God's deliverance, to remember God's salvation, to remember how we were enslaved to the Egyptians, that life was hard and miserable, but God heard our cry, came to our defense, and released us and rescued us from this. And so that's what we have. And so Passover is a time of remembering. It's a time of remembering the salvation and the deliverance of the Jewish people from slavery and oppression. And they did this every year. And just so you know, it was an entire ceremony. It wasn't just a quick 15-minute thing or a tack-on to the end of a worship service on Sunday morning. Has anybody uh, ever observed some type of Passover celebration before? A few years, several years ago at Ashworth, we did it a couple of times where we'd actually do the entire Passover Seder feast here. And it was, it's a very enlightening experience because even though it was established in the Old Testament, there's so many New Testament overtones in what's taking place. But I'll just give you the quick rundown of what was taking place. What you see here is the Seder. This is the plate that you set up that kind of guides the service. And then you see the four cups of wine. And the, the Passover itself is kind of marked in four different sections and each section is marked with a cup of wine that has a blessing. Now, it's possible in Jesus' day there were only three cups of wine. There's some questions over that with one added later. But when we read in Luke what Jesus was doing, the first cup, you see, there were two cups. Did you guys catch that? We don't always think about that. But there was the first cup that he had, and we think that was the first cup of the meal where Jesus would have taken that, and he would have held up the cup, and he would have said a prayer in Hebrew that in English would be translated something like, Blessed are you, O Lord, ruler of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. And then everybody would drink. Then there'd be a little bit like washing of hands. And then you see the green leafy stuff on the plate. That's like parsley. You could use lettuce or things like that. And there's also a, a dip that you dip the green leafy stuff into, and it's salt water. 
So you take a little parsley, you dip it in, and you eat with the salt water. A lot of significance there. The vegetable, or it's called the karpas, represented life. But then you dipped it in the salt water to remember the life of pain, the tears, the salty tears of the people as they were in uh, slavery. After that, there was a fun little portion of question asking, but it was the same questions every year that you would be asked. Usually, it was the youngest person that was there that could ask these questions. So this was a family meal. This was something that the entire family could take part in. And the questions were like this. Why is this night different? Why do we eat unleavened bread? Why on this night do we eat the marar or bitter herbs? Why do we eat reclining? And then the head of the house would take time to answer these questions. Unleavened bread. Because they had to leave in a hurry. There was no time to let the bread rise, so we used the unleavened bread. The bitter herbs remind us of the slavery. Because one thing else that was on that plate is like a horseradish paste that is very strong. It could bring tears to your eyes kind of thing. And it's to remind you of the pain and of slavery. And then the reclining. Why do we recline? Because reclining is something free people get to do when they eat. And so you see the symbolism. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that an awesome picture? So there would be a time where you saw the three pieces of matzah or the bread on the plate. Well, they would take the middle matzah, break it, put it in a napkin, and then the leader, the house leader, would then go hide it where the kids could then go find it. Isn't that kind of a fun little hide-and-seek thing? They would retell the story of the first Passover. They would eat the meal together, including lamb, because that was also part of the first Passover. They'd drink the second cup of deliverance along the way. And then following the meal, you'd get to the third cup, which is called the cup of redemption. And then finally, the fourth cup, which would be the fourth cup of praise. And most likely, in Luke's telling, we see Jesus with the first cup and the third cup. Now, forgive that very abbreviated retelling. There's much more to it, but you get the idea of what was going on here. This was several hours long. Um, This was, as again, it wasn't a 30-minute and out the door. You sat, you took your time. There were some other pieces where there was a cup on the table that was full of wine that you looked to see if Elijah had joined you because Elijah was a big prophet, and then there could be a knock at the, or the kids would have to go check the door to see if Elijah had shown up. There's incredible imagery here. But this was significant and important as family celebrated it together. But put yourself in that Jewish person's position and imagine what this annual meal might have meant to you and your family. What significance would that be? I feel like for us as Americans, history is not very important. Tradition is also not very important sometimes, and we're very eager to move forward. I'm very guilty of that. The staff laughs at me because they know my favorite expression is, What's next? There you go. See? But think about it. To remember the enslavement, to remember the pain, and then to remember the freedom, and to think and reflect on the God who was delivering you. What an incredible celebration. What an incredible moment. But what's interesting, they've been doing this for thousands of years. And as I said, Jesus would have done this with Mary and Joseph. He'd have done this with probably the disciples before the one we have recorded here. But in this moment, Jesus gets to this Last Supper, 
And with his disciples, there would have probably been a little bit of confusion. Because as they've all done this before, you didn't have to tell somebody, here are the four questions you asked. They knew what they were. You didn't have to say, oh, it's time for this. This was so ingrained in what they did, the ritual of Passover that they knew. And yet Jesus gets to the first cup and he would say that blessing, blessed are you, O Lord, who creates the fruit of the vine. And then he makes this statement. He says, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now, wait, what? That's not in the script, Jesus. That's not the thing that's supposed to be said right now. So that even from the beginning, Jesus is twisting, modifying, changing some things up. And then he gets to the bread, and he makes this statement, this is my body. Now, that's nowhere in the script. What in the world are you talking about, Jesus? You've completely flipped this upside down. He's made an, a celebration, a meal, a festival that's about God and God's deliverance. And now, who's he pointing it towards? Himself. He's bringing incredible meaning to something they had done for years. No one had said anything like this before. And Jesus is taking the old symbols and bringing new meaning. He's transforming it right in front of them. What he was doing is he was bringing the salvation of the past forward. What you had experienced in the past, you're going to experience now. Isn't that amazing? And in how God used the lamb in the past to deliver and to save the Jewish nation from Egypt and Pharaoh... Now, through Jesus, God is going to be rescuing the world from slavery to the powers of sin and death. That ought to get us a little bit excited, don't you think? No longer is this a festival, a meal that looks back thousands of years ago to my ancestors who were slaves to the Egyptians. Now Jesus is saying, I'm bringing this into your life today. Salvation that was then is now here and now. The lamb that was there, I'm now the lamb. The blood that was over the doorpost will now be the blood that's on the cross to bring you that salvation. This is such a profound statement. Jesus says, says this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Now, we don't use that word covenant much. We have contracts. We make promises. We shake hands. But to be fair, often they don't mean much. We hire lawyers to get us out, to look for loopholes, you know, so that we don't have to be people of our word if we don't want to be. But for Jesus, this was a big deal. God is a covenantal God. The promise he made to Abraham and his descendants was being fulfilled. And instead of God simply throwing his hands up and looking at everybody and saying, you guys missed it, I'm done, he says, I'm not done. I'm putting a new covenant in place. I'm doing something new and different, and I'm still going to honor my promise, and it's just going to be expanded for the world. And just as that original covenant with Abraham was sealed with blood, the covenant, this new covenant, was also going to be sealed with the blood of Jesus. A new era of salvation had come. And a meal that was intended to get us to look back and remember the past. Jesus is now, oh, be quiet, Siri. Jesus is now saying what it's about to happen. And it points us to something in the future. It points us to what Jesus is doing. It's no longer about the past. The past is important. We don't want to forget it, but we want to let it bring us to the present and to the future. And this meal gives us a reminder of what was going to happen at the cross. We talked about this earlier this year in the Crossroads series, where we said at the cross, Jesus 
took on himself our sin and our shame and our guilt and our pain. And in that same moment, he put onto us his righteousness. But it was even more than that. He purchased our freedom. No longer slaves to sin. No longer fearful of death. He says, I've brought you life. He defeated the powers of evil. No longer are we fearful of that. No longer do we have to live our lives wondering, are we going to be overcome? No, what Christ has done on the cross is overcome. And he brought to us reconciliation and that we were enemies of God, that we may not even have been thinking about God. And it didn't matter because what Jesus did on the cross literally tore the curtain. There was a temple there was a two different parts. There was the holy place, and in, then there was the holy of holies, where one person could go in one time a year behind this huge curtain in order to make sacrifice for the people. And in the holy of holies, that's where God was. And when Jesus was crucified, we read that that curtain was torn from top to bottom, that what separated us from God no longer existed, that we could now boldly enter the presence of God, that reconciliation, even though we might have seen God as an enemy, God never saw us that way. He saw us as his friends, and he adopted us into his family as sons and daughters of the king. Woo! (laughs) That gets us excited. Man, it's so good. And what Jesus did is in this moment, when he's having this meal with these disciples, all this is going on. And I would, you know, we get the benefit of 2,000 years and a completed scripture and a lot of theological study to go, wow, we kind of get an understanding of this. But I can promise you that in that moment with the disciples, they had no clue what was going on. They're trying to figure this out. Man, Jesus, what are you talking about? The man had been speaking in parables. Every time he did, the disciples are like, please explain this to us. And in this moment, it would be another one. It's like, Jesus, what are you talking about? But in hours, they would understand. In hours, they would see the broken body and the shed blood. And they would have that aha moment. You see... For us today, one of the things we'll do, there's different, you know, when it comes to this meal and as we observe it today, good people that follow Jesus like we always do, we want to find differences and then hold our differences against each other. And you can say, oh, the Catholics do this and the Lutherans do this and the Baptists do this and the Reformers do this, you know. But really, what Jesus was trying to do was create a table where there was unity. And really, to be a place where the dividing walls crumbled. And for us, and, and, and for me, and how I was brought up, and really how I believe, it's, it's really more memorial than anything else. But I think in believing that, we often have this idea that, well, I remember and that's enough. But as I was reading this week, a new book by author Sky Jatani, or it's called, uh, What If Jesus Was Serious About the Church? He writes that if we reduce this meal to mental recollection, then communion becomes unnecessary and redundant. But he points out in the ancient world that it wasn't, really, wasn't merely the mental recollection of past events. Whether it meant, uh, rather, it meant recalling a past event so that the power of that event may enter the present. Theologian Paul Bradshaw wrote, It's not nostalgia, 
but asking God to complete his saving purpose today. It's not simply about remembering the past, but about experiencing the redemption of God today. And, you know, you read the the New Testament, you find out it didn't take long for the people to really screw this up. Paul had to get on to them in 1 Corinthians 11. And, you know, he's trying to straighten them out. They'd created division over this meal, the haves and the haves not, the wealthy and the poor, and the poor were left out. And Paul says this, he says, uh, Do you despise the church of God, humiliating those who have nothing? What can I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. Not some some good words there. But he corrects them and he says, Look, this is the Lord's table. There's an invitation. It's open for people. But he writes this, he says, So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. So everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. Anybody heard that before? Anybody been scared to death to take Lord's Supper before? Because you're like, oh my goodness, I think God may have something against me. Can I just tell you that context is everything and Paul is not talking about your personal purity here? You know that? That's not what he's saying. The point of what Paul is saying is they'd created these divisions. They were keeping people out. He isn't saying, oh, kneel and confess all your sin, although confession is a good thing and needs to be done on a regular basis. What Paul is concerned here about isn't purity, it's unity. Not using the Lord's table to reinforce divisions where Jesus meant it to be a place where everybody comes together. And so to take unworthily means to just perpetuate division. We recognize what Jesus has done for us. We recognize all of our dependence upon God and how our differences mean absolutely nothing in light of the cross. And we find community at the table reflecting on Jesus. So summing up his time on earth, Jesus sits with his disciples and he shares this meal, pointing us to the work on the cross and the present active work of the church in the world and the kingdom that will be fulfilled in the days to come. Notice what Jesus does with this meal. I love this. He doesn't just tell them about it. Say, hey, sit down, get out your notebooks. I want to take some notes on this. No. He doesn't even just say, hey, watch me do this. (laughs) See what he did? He invited them to the table. You know who was also at that table? Judas. You know what Judas would do in just a few hours? Yep. Even Peter, who at this meal, Jesus says to him, you're going to betray me or you're going to deny me three times. And Peter is still welcome at the table. You see, Jesus invites us today to that table, not as observers, but as participants. We get a seat at the table with Jesus, not just to look at it, not just to smell it, but you are invited to eat. And like the Jewish people, we're invited to leave behind the things that enslave us, to walk in freedom that Jesus offers us through his death on the cross and his resurrection. And that's what we're going to do right now. I'm going to have the worship team go ahead and come. And because Amy Becker, the great theologian, shared this week, she said, nothing centers Jesus in our lives more than dining together with purpose. And so we're going to come to the table. So we have four tables in the room.